Hi, and welcome to another episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Now, my guest today is an author, a professor, resident of New York. Sophie, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, uh, my name is Sophie Tanhauser. As you said, I live in Brooklyn, and I'm the author of Worn, A People's History of Clothing. Now, before we get into the meat of the book, the intro of the book had me hooked from the first moment. I don't know if we can use a word like thrift porn, but you were talking about how you got into quality clothes. You know what I'm hinting at. I do, yes. Yeah, so I grew up on the island of Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts, which was in the news recently, actually, because it's become uh, embroiled in some really insane U.S. politics, but is more is more regularly known as a kind of tourist destination for wealthy people. It's also, you know, has a, a, a middle-class day tourist um, kind of population in the summer, but, but there are some, there are some quite uh, wealthy people that come for the summer and a place called the Dump Teak, which is a little shack outside the municipal landfill in the town I grew up in, where everything is free and where people often leave really remarkable stuff. So this was kind of my intro to thrifting was going to the Dump Teak on Saturdays and taking what I wanted and really being exposed to some things I wouldn't have come across otherwise, like a load-in coat I got there as a teenager or really incredibly made camisoles um, or just incredible cocktail dresses from the 50s. Things that I wouldn't have come across otherwise came into my hands because of the dump teak. And I already had a fascination with clothing from being a person who wears clothing and from being a young girl who watches film and television and is, I mean, it's pretty hard to, hard to to remain aloof from the power of the garment, uh, I think, for anyone. And certainly for me, I recognized how much power there was in a costume and played dress up, you know, as many children do from very early on. And as sort of an extension of playing dress up, wanted to learn how to sew pretty early on. And, um, and, and yes, this exposure at the dump teak to some really quality pieces certainly um, whet my appetite even more for learning about materials and clothing history. Sounds utterly remarkable and kind of brilliant as well, because, I mean, most thrift stores aren't that great because the people giving to them aren't giving very good stuff. It really depends. I mean, there's a remarkable variety. I think it also depends on who the clientele is and how picked through they are. I spent the fall of 2021 in Budapest, and I found that to be a fabulous thrift store experience. I mean, I got so many sweaters made in Norway sweaters. I brought back a suitcase for my family. Like, I have I have never seen such a high concentration of beautiful traditional um, Norwegian sweaters as I have in the thrift stores of Budapest. So it's sort of a little 
deep dive into what the people of any particular locale have been wearing for the last several decades and where they've been on vacations and what they have decided to let go of. So I think you're absolutely right that some thrift stores are pretty disappointing and full of things made in the last 10 years and mostly full of poly cotton blends. But there are thrift stores out there still. There's one in New York that I like to go to that has the discarded goods from like Upper East, uh, older women from the Upper East Side of New York that are pretty baller. So I I think that (laughs) the good thrift store has not gone extinct. It's interesting you mentioned Norwegian sweaters in Budapest because there is actually an explanation for that. Oh, I'm so excited to learn what it is. Tell me. The Salvation Army in Norway pretty much has the charity thrift um, donated market sewn up. Yeah. But they get so much stuff that about 90% of it is just put on trucks and trucked to Eastern Europe. Wow. And it's then sorted, which would then end up in Budapest. And I did notice that before the recent troubles in the Ukraine, that um, they were also putting an awful lot of nice things on eBay. Mm. So it's basically the dumping ground from the Western Europe, and they've got savvy people picking through and selling it online there. Fascinating. I that that's incredible. I'm I'm so I was dead wrong. I thought, oh, I guess at some point in the recent past, Hungarians must have been going to Norway as tourists <laughs> and bringing back these sweaters. I was dead wrong. I'm so glad to know that. And yeah, I mean, I, I could see an entrepreneurial opportunity there because to one of those sweaters in the U.S. would be hard to find for under $100. And they were the equivalent of like 15 U.S. dollars in Budapest thrift stores. So mm. I brought back 11 and gave them to my, to, to my extended family. My brother and sister got one. My uncle and aunt got one. My mother got one. We, they, they all got clothed in uh, Norwegian sweaters last Thanksgiving. So realizing that these Norwegian sweaters were good, was that something you learned from the Dumtique? I think that was something I learned probably from the first time I saw someone wearing one, which I struggle to say where I first saw one but it could have been the dump teak it could have been another thrift store along the way I very much doubt that it was a new clothing store in which I first came across a Norwegian sweater but the quality is kind of obvious immediately from the look and the touch and the materials and the patterns they're so stunning and it's actually a garment I don't really know the history of. I sort of have invented a story about it that it is a, I don't know about ancient, but certainly pre-industrial product that still continues to be made, but that has pretty old roots. I mean, just looking at the patterns themselves, I, I have invented a story about them. Do you know anything about the kind of origin story of those designs? I know the patterns are very historic. Yeah. I couldn't really say how far back they go. Mm-hmm. But there was, I have heard tell that the various fishing villages up along the coast each had their own patterns. So that if you found a fisherman floating face down, you could recognize his hometown by his the pattern on his sweater. With military but, dog tags, but beautiful. Kind of grim, but... I don't know if it's true. 
interesting. I mean, so many patterns are associated with the locale or the village or the particular clan of the wearer, traditionally. But the traditional patterns and the traditional folk costumes of Norway are very protective, and the people who are involved in it are very protective of the craft and the designs and the fabrics and everything that goes into them. So they do have a, a, a fairly long history. Yeah. Speaking of protective, I have read that often folk um, design motifs will involve components at the neck and at the wrist for protective purposes, and they're to ward off any evil spirits coming in through those locations. So it is something that I've noticed about the Norwegian sweaters, that they're heavily motifed around the neck and at the wrist. I mean, those are also convenient places to to use a flower motif or a design, but I, I have thought about that since I read it somewhere a while ago. Hmm. Can't say I've heard that one, but it mm-hmm. sounds like a plausible story, so we'll let it be. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Shall we move on to your book? Sure. What? I'm about to say, I was about to say, what possessed you to <laughs> get started on this, but what motivated you to go so deep? I like what possessed you because it was kind of like p- possession. And um, I don't think if I had understood from the beginning how long it would take and how deep it would go, I don't think I would have set out. I would have said, I don't think I want to spend a decade on that. But I, I ultimately did spend about a decade on this book. And I think that for me, the garment was a location in which a lot of my interests intersected. So interest in women's labor historically, interest in globalization, interest in imperial violence, all of these intersect in the garment. And clothing was something that I was interested in as a person, as a person who likes to dress and likes to likes to take in clothing on other people. And I had developed a kind of aesthetic distaste for a lot of what was happening around me as a college student, I think. I began to feel that it was a degraded environment to a certain extent in terms of what we were all wearing. This was in the 2000s. And I think that I was right. At the time, I felt this is really um, shallow and this isn't this isn't serious. This is, uh, I don't know, this is some some girl shit or whatever. And it wasn't until I came across the writings of Victorian British intellectuals like Ruskin, in particular, and William Morris, who were taking material culture really seriously and evolving critiques of an entire society's way of making and distributing goods um, just by looking at a table or looking at middle-class design tastes in Britain and saying, this is, there's something really ugly here, and it's ugly because the way we're making it is ugly. In other words, I, I moved from feeling um, kind of distaste at certain garments I was seeing to a stance that... Um, maybe there was something wrong with the way things looked because there was actually something wrong. And I had, like, I think many people, um, like, kind of fragments of knowledge about, okay, well, the history of cotton, there's, that's the history of slavery. 
I had been aware of, you know, things happening in the 90s with revelations of sweatshop abuses, particularly Nike, I remember in the 90s. So I was aware that this was a place where there was labor concerns, environmental concerns, but it it eventually, the more I thought about it, the more I found to be fascinated by, and the more I felt that in clothing was really the crux of all of these different issues that I felt really needed to be explored. And that was sort of the genesis of this project in particular. Because while you might start out just talking about the flax plant and how we get linen from it, it does kind of get dark pretty quickly. It does get dark pretty quickly. And I think that's um, probably... (laughs) maybe a function of of human history or human nature, but also a product of the periodization of this book, which kind of, I think, begins largely with the story of enclosure and the story of um, the Industrial Revolution and the story of imperialism. So kind of a moment when the majority of of people on the planet um, were were at one time or another forced away from doing subsistence agriculture and doing subsistence textile making and into a factory system that, um, I mean, it evolves in stages and the first stage isn't really so much about mechanization. It's more about land um, and labor. But, But yeah, the story that I tell in this book is extremely violent. And I think that as I looked at it more and more, I felt that most of the garments that exist today are the products of a lot of violence, and they're the products of a legacy of violence. I mean, if simply thinking about cotton in New York City, where I am right now, which, you know, cotton doesn't grow in this climate. I mean, there's a story there, and it's a violent story. So you're right. It's a dark history, uh, kind of from the beginning. And I attempted to leaven it a little bit with beauty and, you know, ingenuity and um, (laughs) history and nature and and things that I really do find beautiful about clothing and about people and tried to inject a little humor, but it is a story that involves a tremendous amount of violence. Shall we start out talking a bit about linen, which is the first major part of the book? Um, I think you say in the book that it's one of the oldest human activities, growing flax and extracting the fibres. Yeah, so I'm not an archaeologist, but um, archaeologists tend to see the earliest... I mean... One of the things that should be said about textiles is that they break down really quickly. So as archaeological artifacts, they're pretty unreliable. They're not like metal or stone tools. It's very difficult to say what people were wearing thousands of years ago because these things break down so much more quickly. But most um, archaeologists who study this believe that the earliest human clothing well, the earliest that the earliest human clothing was was animal hides and pelts, but the earliest textiles, which is to say, something that was spun into a thread and then woven into cloth, were made from vegetal fibers like flax. So rather than being made from wool, for instance, or silk or cotton, they were made from 
a plant like flax, where what you do is take off the husk and then reveal underneath these long, strong strands of fiber that can be kind of automatically before you even twist them together, although they are twisted together, made into a thread that then can be made into a cloth. So in the section on linen, I start um, mostly in, we, we, we kind of do a, a quick overview of, of this early history and then move into the story of, of guilds in um, Europe and how the kind of um, some, some funny guild politics, actually, <laughs> that um, involved a prejudice against linen weavers and ultimately um, a period during which there's a real tension between guild labor and kind of proto-capitalist forms of distribution of textiles that have the end result of a mass ejection of women from the labor market. So this is really telling the story of a time in Europe where women were ejected from the economy, essentially. Um, and and it, it's a transition from um, an economic system where most um, goods are not, it's not a cash economy. Most people are growing their own food for the most part and making their own textiles. And in the transition to a, to a cash economy, how women are sort of forcibly ejected in the middle of this trauma. So it's sort of a trauma within a trauma. And I wanted to set this up um, partly because it's intimately connected with the story of linen and partly also because without understanding the precarity of women within the European economy and then the colonial American economy, it's really hard to understand why women would be these ideal early workers in the factories that came to produce textiles. And because they were, I mean, so were children, but women and children were cheap and they were cheap for a reason. And I wanted to not take for granted that... Um, those histories were necessarily very well known. I mean, they weren't very well known to me before I began doing this research. It sort of struck me when I was reading it that throughout the history, um, garments and fabrics have been something men would work with when they thought it was cool to work with them. <laughs> but once they had something better to do, they'd leave it to the women and the children, which is pretty grim. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's hard to completely generalize about in that there are cultures in which um, traditionally men were the weavers, like in India. Um, but there there are a lot of um, archaeologists who believe that early textile manufacture went to women in the context of like a subsistence farming economy because it was compatible with child rearing because it wasn't a dangerous thing to be doing while you had a kid around. And that, as you say, as soon as an economy became diversified enough that textiles were marketable and could be traded for money, that yes, that is when men would get into the action. And um, that's an interest, yeah, an interesting little um, historical correspondence. But as you say, yeah, in the early... Um, in the early days of the Industrial Revolution, the labor force is, is mostly women and the you know factory owners are mostly men, so it breaks down that way. Mm. 
And to start with, most women were making their own fabrics at home, growing the crops to give them the fibres and then weaving it and either for to trade or for their own family. Exactly. Or in some cases to pay taxes. So there's um, in... Um, in what is now South America, for instance, in a lot of those cultures, taxes were levied in bolts of fabric. So within a subsistence, you know, peasant economy, a peasant family would be growing cotton and weaving it for the use of the family or to trade locally. And they also might be growing and weaving some bolts to pay taxes. And the same is true later in China with silk, like silk was something that a peasant family might be growing and weaving for their own use and for a little bit of local trade, but also was the the currency in which ta taxes were levied. And then along came the Industrial Revolution, factories being put up, needed a labor force. Yes, although one of the things that I um, I try to do in the book is to show the way in which the Industrial Revolution wouldn't really have been such a powerful moment in the history of textiles if it hadn't been for something that sort of preceded it, which was which was imperialism, which was um, so Britain um, arrives in India uh, alongside of some other colonial powers who sort of, sort of duke it out for the rights to trade from the Indian subcontinent. It wasn't obviously the state of India yet, but it, it used to be that that subcontinent was the greatest exporter of cotton textiles in the world. India, Indian cottons were very famous, and the calicos were one of the main products that the early British East India Company wanted to sell. And so as um, British power encroached more and more onto the subcontinent, and as British, um, you know, merchants became more and more invested in continuing the supply um, of Indian calicos coming out of the country. Um, Indian weavers were little by little impoverished, and little by little, um, control of their products was taken from them. So it was a real historic shift for ultimately India to become, I mean, ultimately where this ends up is with India becoming an importer of British textiles. And, and that turn was made possible by the machinery of the Industrial Revolution. But the political power that was being applied in India and the violence that was being applied in India in order to kind of force a beneficial trade relation between England and the subcontinent in Calico, that kind of all preceded that machinery. So it was because um, England had already kind of dominated the trade in cotton fabrics that when it evolved the, these machines that could make cotton fabric, it had uh, it was already positioned to create a global empire based on selling these goods to people who used to make them. At that point, where was Britain getting their cotton from? Good question. So um, there was a real, um, there was a couple of years, um, this little blip after the invention of this textile machinery um, that could do such an incredible amount of work in such a record amount of time. And 
before they had a good source of raw cotton. There was, it was, it was, um, however, something that created an immense impetus for anyone who could develop a source of raw cotton that was, you know, big enough to meet the demand. So originally some of, um, you know, Britain's imperial apparatus, some of its merchants, some of its industrialists were hoping that that raw cotton would come from India. But the fact is that in India, most of the land was tied up by small agriculturalists who were already there and already busy using the land to grow vegetables or grow small amounts of cotton for their own production. So it was, in fact, in the American South where this huge export um, zone would develop. And um, basically what we had in the American South was you know, a white society willing to ruthlessly clear the indigenous inhabitants from the land and a source of labor in the form of, you know, African enslaved people. So all, all that you need to grow cotton on a scale like this is land in the right climate and labor. And these two things were available, like, you know, grass, uh, the immense amount of violence that people were willing to apply. This is what I say when I, I say this is sort of the story of a lot of violence. And it was, as you know, the history books uh, in America and probably other places say, the invention of the cotton gin by Eli Whitney that really was a pretty big turning point. Because basically, before the cotton gin, you could grow cotton in the American South. It grew really well, but the labor involved in separating the lint from the seed was so time-consuming that it wasn't really commercially viable. So as soon as the, the cotton gin came on the scene, it freed up the possibility of just creating immense amounts of this raw material. And that's exactly what happened. All you know, the the demand was there in Britain and later in the northern half of, of the US and the supply was there. And this was really when um, American slave agriculture really took off in the South. Kind of ironic that it was the inventions of the machines that would save the labor that enslaved even more people. I, I agree. I mean, and it's, it's true, I think, for so many products, but it, it also seems to me that in the story of clothing, it's particularly ironic or, or dense, right? That this, this thing that used to take so much labor and then we, we created these machines that kind of obviate the need for that much labor and yet there's still just immense amounts of labor and exploited labor being poured in to this project. So I, I totally I totally agree. Like I, I think that earlier on in my research I was sort of prone to vilify the machine itself. And later I thought, you know what, it's not really the problem of machines. It's the problem of the use to which machines are put. So there are cases in the early history of mechanical manufacture where machines were used in ways that I think are a little bit more interesting. So there was a machine that, um, that carded wool. It was a, you know, carding wool, you're kind of brushing it and making all of the fibers go in one direction. And when they created a, a way, like a water-powered machine that could card wool, early on, it was a service. So people who had sheep could bring their wool to the carter, have it carded, bring it home, spin it, weave it, do whatever. It was, it was a machine that took a lot of the labor out of something, but didn't serve to concentrate wealth in one person's hands. So I think that 
machines are cool. And I don't think they're really the problem, but it, it seems that, yeah, these incredible um, labor-saving machines then get used to produce vast pyramidal structures of power and exploitation over and over again in the history of clothing. I have to admit that a lot of these machines are very cool. And whenever I oh, see yeah. some of them, I think, wow, someone invented that. Good Absolutely. <laughs> they're so cool. They're, they're amazing. There's this one called the Bramwell Feeder that um, a guy showed me along the way where it used to be that when you were, when you were um, putting wool through a carter, it didn't matter how evenly it went through because ultimately it was going to be hand spun. So you could have like a fat bit of wool roving or a skinny bit of wool roving coming out of the machine and the, the spinner herself would eyeball it and pull off as much as she needed. And then when the spinning frame was invented, when, when mechanical spinning became the norm and you needed even amounts of roving, there's this um, little apparatus called the Bramwell feeder that was designed to make sure you get even numbers of wool dumped on. And um, the guy who showed me, Jay Ardai, was so tickled by this that I still remembered it. The wool travels up, um, travels up like a, a track and then it goes into a little trough and the trough is connected to a scale. And as soon as the scale hits a certain weight, it tips over and it, it hits a switch that stops the wool from coming up. It's like a drive that's, that's shifted by the... It's really hard to explain machines in words, I have to say. One of the things I struggled with when I was writing this is there's so many mechanical processes that are perfectly interesting if you're looking at them, but they're not the easiest things to put into language. So that's something I struggle with. I hope I explained that at all. Mm, mm. I, I can look at something like a loom and the shuttle's just flying back and forth. There's bits of wood, metal, leather, whatever, and it's all just bang, 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 working like a clock a hundred years after it was built. Yes, they're it's beautiful. Incredible. I mean, it's something that in the US and I think in Europe also, I I really worry about because a lot of these machines, um, you know, from the 1880s and 90s or earlier are, are not really being preserved. They're kind of a, a problem for museums because they're so huge and so heavy. And a lot of textile museums have come upon kind of hard hard times financially in the last couple of decades and a lot of the a lot of the heritage of you know american industrial engineering is really being lost the machines get deaccessioned and they kind of sit in warehouses and there are people doing interesting projects with old machines old looms in particular but it is something where just yeah decades and in some cases centuries of human ingenuity is is there in the cast iron somewhere and it's not in a book it's in the machine and they really are pretty beautiful mm, mm. you should visit visit uh, daniel at the london cloth company if you're ever in london he collects old looms and they all work they all oh that's fabulous i would love to go there i mean that's the thing about looms is that it's like with automobiles the best way to keep them in good shape is just to actually keep them running Mm. Now, with regards to cotton, you have a, a chapter in the book about modern-day cotton growing in Texas. Yes. Which was kind of a chilling chapter, really. It is pretty... How, how, how was it to visit there? 
very mixed. Um, the people I met were incredibly warm and welcoming, and I found myself really liking them and in, um, enjoyed, you know, their hospitality. And at the same time, some of the practices that I saw them engaging in, in terms of the chemical regimes that were being, that Earth was being subjected to, were really startling to me. So I think um, one of the things that I learned in the course of this research is as, as, as bad as I think some of these practices are, I was sort of waiting to find like the, the, the villain, you know, like who's the guy, who's the, who's the really bad guy who's doing this. And it, it, I never found that guy. It was like a bunch of nice people uh, trying to make a living and working within the constraints of the technology and the culture that they were in. And that was what I saw in Texas. And it was people who were using paraquat and, you know, uh, other known carcinogens really regularly on their land to do things um, in a way that they could make a profit. And, um, I, yeah, I found it... The, the landscape in itself in Lubbock is really startling because it's so flat. And there's literally, in October, just cotton blowing across the highways. Like, it is everywhere. The scale of, of, of this really boggles the mind, it boggled my mind. Um, and, and in addition to the chemical intensity, there's a huge question of water that was really palpable in Texas because of the kind of desertification that you could see with your eyes, but also just knowing that the Ogallala Aquifer, which is what is kind of powering this whole cotton production in terms of its water source, is almost gone. And this is a story that's played out over and over in the last, you know, century of, of or really since the advent of, you know, like of the of the pump that can bring up water from an aquifer into an agricultural field, is that we're, we're really, um, we're kind of mining water to grow cotton in a way that's not going to last very much longer. It's kind of like uh, farming in California now. Yes. Where do you want people to drink or do you want the plants to thrive? Yes. Yeah, hard, really hard choices are going to be made and are being made in the American West and in other places like it. Were Monsanto seeds a factor in Texas? Absolutely. So um, what, the, what the farmers were planting is something called BT cotton, which is a cotton seed engineered to be resistant or immune. It's now the case that this immunity seems to be diminishing, but to the bollworm, so to this pest that has wreaked havoc on cotton crop in the United States and other places in the world historically. So the seed has a poison inside that kills the bollworm. And the seed produces a kind of cotton that can survive being treated with Roundup, which is a um, which is an herbicide that is liberally sprayed on top of, of, of what's called Roundup-ready cotton. So Instead of having to chop weeds, which was a really labor-intensive process, you can just dump herbicide on top of the whole cotton field, and other plants die because they're being poisoned, but the cotton crop that is made with this Monsanto BT Roundup Ready seed doesn't die. 
So the problem with this is, I mean, there are many problems with this, but one of them is that anywhere the Roundup goes outside of the cotton field, it, um, you know, it kills whatever. It, because you, like when you spray a pesticide, it, it travels outside. It, depending on wind speeds, it, it travel, can travel pretty far and end up wiping out anything that's not quote-unquote Roundup ready in the environs. Um, I mean, in, in this part of the world, the farmers tend to be pretty well subsidized by the U.S. government. But in other parts of the world where um, Monsanto seed is becoming the norm, like, for instance, in India, another big problem with the Monsanto seed is that it's expensive and you can't replant it. So it's, it's actually illegal to replant it year to save seeds and plant again the next year. So farmers are are being asked to buy new seed each year, in addition to which it's just m- much more expensive than traditional seed. As well, the farmers in Texas have huge machines. They have huge areas. The farmers in India have small areas and having to buy or, I guess, subscribe to Monsanto seeds. Are they also then not certain of how much money they'll get for their cotton well exactly that's the thing is that global cotton prices affect how much they'll make and they're competing with people like those farmers in texas who have these huge subsidies and then just the amount of rainfall that year or any number of things whether there's a new pest that the cotton is not resistant to um, all of these things can lead to a farmer being wiped out economically within the course of a single season so it's 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 really a, a difficult situation, and there's a lot of issues with debt. And some people have connected big, um, you know, sort of batches of farmer suicide to this debt. So it, it is a really difficult thing to look at environmentally, but also from a labor perspective and from the perspective of a small farmer. Yeah, cotton has kind of got a reputation for being on the bad side. And I guess if we look towards China, that doesn't really improve the picture either. No, if we want to go from very dark to even, if possible, darker, we have only to move over to Xinjiang in Western China, where there is a huge issue with um, forced labor in the cotton field and, and a connection with what in some countries... Um, including the U.S., uh, is being termed a genocide. So the Uyghur people of Xinjiang are under, um, I mean, to, to, to put it like kind of neutrally, are being um, placed in huge camps that are surrounded by barbed wire. Uh, the, the Chinese Communist Party refers to them as vocational education centers, but it looks like what's being done in them is a process of, of um, maybe we could say cultural genocide or we could say genocide period. It's, it's, a, it's a very, very disturbing picture that's emerging from Xinjiang, although no journalists are allowed in. It, it's clear from satellite photos that a lot of these um, labor camps are, are being used to harvest cotton and in some cases to make garments that are going out into the world. So... It's a big um, international issue. In the U.S., there's a ban on the import of anything suspected to have been made in Xinjiang. And Customs and Border Patrol is now tasked with trying to figure out 
whether, you know, when they get a shirt made in Vietnam, does it have a little bit of Xinjiang cotton in it? It's really, really a huge problem to try to figure that out because of how complicated the um, supply chain is for the modern garment. But it is a um, situation that's really disturbing and it, I think is also just really part of the tradition of cotton manufacture since, you know, since the period where we started our story, which is the arrival of the British in India. I think since, um, since the arrival of cotton as a commodity crop and mass, manufa mass manufactured cotton textiles, forced labor of some kind has sort of been the rule rather than the exception in manufacturing cotton textiles. And I think what's happening in Xinjiang is unfortunately just a really new iteration of something that's been happening for a really long time. Yet we keep getting reports of various large fashion companies getting their cotton and garments from there as if it's just business as usual. Yeah, it's pretty stunning, isn't it? I mean, they like to pretend that it's too complicated for them to know where their stuff is coming from. Like, oh, we had no idea. We subcontracted to a subcontractor to a subcontractor. And that can that can sound kind of plausible. It is very complicated to trace supply chains. But I mean, some of the activists that I've spoken to have said things like, a company can tell us whether, a, a, you know, a granola bar was made in a factory that also processed peanuts. Like, they should be able to tell us where this cotton came from. So there are activists saying we can't accept that as an answer. We can't accept, oh, like, we had no idea. Because if you're making a product, I think, I think it is a reasonable expectation that you should know where all the inputs are coming from. It's just kind of a way of not taking responsibility, isn't it? Just I think so, pretending yeah. you don't know... Absolutely. So, yeah. Is there any way in the world now you can get cotton that isn't problematic? That's a good question. Um, I mean, I sort of I suppose it sort of depends on where <laughs> what, what, what problematic, you know, where I think there are places in the world where you can get cotton that is is not harvested by force, the use of forced labor. You can buy organic cotton. There's places in the American South today that are growing cotton or organically. There are places in India that are growing cotton organically with fair labor practices. Um, I do think it is possible. But again, I think, and I don't mean to sound like, this is where I can kind of get a little utopian or off the map. It's like anytime you are growing a single crop, on a huge amount of land, there's a problem, right? Because like agriculture doesn't really, anytime you have like a monocrop, you are then forced to devise technological solutions for the fact that any one bug that can get in and eat this can devastate acres and acres and acres. So this is why traditionally people didn't monocrop because it's like, not a good way to make sure your crop doesn't get wiped out by insects. So I think whenever there's a monocrop, you kind of become reliant on chemical intensity. And I would argue it's also hard to imagine that cotton harvesting is a whole lot of fun when you're doing that like as a laborer. But I think there are levels and intensities, that, and that's worth thinking about. And there, I think there are way, ways to purchase cotton that has been 
you know, harvested um, by a worker who's being paid a fair wage and grown with some sense of keeping the land in good shape. Um, there's like cooperatives in India that are doing a lot of work around that that I know of, and um, probably in other parts of the world too. But India is the place where I've I've heard the most about really a focus on restoring land and using labor in a fair way to grow cotton. Yeah. Uh, organic cotton is kind of a strange thing to my mind because it kind of came from nowhere a few years ago hmm. when cotton was really being dunked on. And then it was, well, now we have organic cotton. <laughs> and suddenly there was lots and lots of it. And there were massive claims of it, oh, using so much less water, so much less herbicides, blah, blah, blah. And that's been a sort of accepted truth now for some years. But I saw, I think it was last week, someone had walked back the claims made for it. And it took some digging because it was sort of lost in mist where mm. these numbers had come from. And then it turns out that they were from a document that wasn't really about that, but it's all just crap. Oh. Because the lack of uh, the fact that it used less water, it was just because it was the test they'd, or the numbers they'd used were from an area with lots of rainfall. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, statistics can be so misleading, especially when they're marshaled into ad copy. Another thing that can be um, can be part of the picture with organic cotton, and I do, I do think the organic project is a good one, so I don't mean to cast doubt on it sort of as a whole, but sometimes, or like in the case of Uzbekistan, I think this has been true, and I think it may also be true in China, where you are genuinely doing organic cotton farming, it's going to be more labor intensive because the work of dealing with invasive plants is going to be done by a laborer rather than a chemical. Mm. So I think it is sometimes the case that where organic farming is happening, it may be because there's a really cheap and possibly somewhat unfree labor force available to do that kind of pest and weed control. So that's kind of the other side of the coin. It's hard not to be very, very sceptical to almost everything in this respect. Indeed. <laughs> now, you mentioned silk, and another. there's another sad chapter <laughs> in the book about how the mulberry bushes in China were being eradicated to make room for businesses and the effect that had on the small silk producers. Yeah, I, I went to China because China is the birthplace of silk and not just the fabric itself, but a lot of the like romance and fantasy around the fabric. I think of silk as sort of synonymous with the idea of luxury. And um, it's been such an important fabric, I think, in informing the concept of luxury in uh, certainly in China, but also in the Middle East and Europe, it, wherever it has spread, it has been for a time like a fabric that is very elite. Um, but yes, one of the things I found in China was that in the sort of the Yangtze River Valley, um, some of the best um, mulberry... So, so silk comes from a silkworm, and a silkworm can only eat one thing, which is the leaves of a mulberry tree. So making good silk really depends on the ability to support a population of mulberry trees, which is sort of a question of climate and soil and water. 
And this particular region of China had some of the best mulberry trees in the world. And yeah, as you say, this has become an area where a lot of development has taken place. A, a lot of it, ironically, has been in textiles. And, um, and now it's a lot of these regions are doing other types of manufacturing or other kinds, other, you know, industries. And, and so because of that, the, the best land for mulberry trees has been, yeah, mostly turned into kind of what is now like a sort of megalopolis. So like a, a, tr a triangle of big cities that kind of blend into one another which, you know, is, is fantastic from an economic standpoint, from the standpoint of pure economics, but, but pretty tragic from the standpoint of silk and the tradition of silk. And again, it was the, the small or many small producers, family producers who were affected by this. Yeah, that's true. I mean, uh, there, there's been a lot of different um, phases in the way that textile manufacture has evolved in China. It's some of the some of the patterns are similar in terms of, you know, um, peasant kind of subsistence production into guilds into industrialization. There's there's some differences because of the um, the way that kind of the imperial picture unfolded in China, and then the way that you know the the communist party dealt with that economy but there there are a lot of similarities in the ways that what was once um something that a, a family produced is now kind of something that is produced in large factories and yeah a lot of the of of, of people of mulberry production or rather of um silk cocoon production was coming from from families that's true and also, now that you mentioned the factories, this is the chapter where you come into the mass fashion and the sewing machines and how that's a sort of second wave of the Industrial Revolution where the men again get the women to man the sewing <laughs> machines. Yeah, that's sort, of an, that's sort of a story that happens in the US with the invention of the sewing machine. Um, and I trace the career of this really um, over-the-top character, Isaac Singer, who was just an incredible womanizer and a, um, amazing marketer and, a, and an inventor who, who was able to not invent the sewing machine, but invent some of the improvements to the sewing machine as it then existed that made it really workable. And yeah, from there evolves the, the story of you know ready-to-wear garments, because up until then, Garments were made for a particular person by a tailor. And with the advent of the sewing machine, it made possible to mass produce garments and to produce them in uniform sizes. So one of the reasons I, I tell that story is not just to tell the story of, you know, the advent of mass manufacture, but also to talk about the way that the advertising of, of mass manufactured clothing was kind of born in the 1920s. Because a lot of the, a lot of the gestures that were made by early advertisers are still really present. One of the things that advertisers talked about when they started to find ways to um, to sell sell mass produced clothing was never let the consumer look inside the factory. Never talk about how these things were made, where they were made, or who they were made by, but rather you know focus on the garments themselves in the environment where they're going to be worn and seen. 
And so a lot of fantasy is involved in the early stages and still is. I mean, these are basically commodities, you know, garments are commodities. And yet to read ad copy, they are things that are going to transform you and your life and, and, and turn you into, a, you know, a businesswoman or a exercising machine or a, you know, a cool, I mean, there, there are just a lot of promises that are made. And I think that often, um, often there's like, there's truth in that. I think clothing really can transform, but I think that, um, the advertising apparatus is particularly powerful when it comes to advertising fashion because of some of the historic, the deep, you know, the deep longing and and need we have to interact with garments and textiles. Um, I think that's, that need is real. And I think advertising kind of, kind of capitalizes on that need and also on a history where, you know, traditionally only certain people in a society could wear a garment like royalty or an aristocracy. There's, there's a real history of clothing being used as a means to stratify. And I think that modern advertising kind of also makes great use of that fact because an elite garment or a, a name brand is is used to signify some sort of status that you know might now be available to everyone but once wasn't and and so there's there's a lot of prestige being traded i think in the, these fantasies I loop back just a little bit i have to admit i found the sewing machine part fascinating and this larger than life singer character who whilst traveling around promoting his sewing machines also had two entirely separate families i think he actually had four or five entirely separate families and so many kids he was yeah he was a very busy man very it was also interesting that the patents at the time so working so that people who were inventing sewing machines had their own patents so they were basically blocking each other from developing the same machines yeah and so I, was it was it was it singer who came along and sort of amalgamated them it was um it was a combination of things so the sewing machine was really the first consumer product to be mass manufactured of that level of complexity there there were consumer products and there were complex machines being mass manufactured really only the the rifle but this was the first consumer product of this much complexity. And so it, it became a battleground for um, intellectual property law. And, and so, yeah, all these different companies had evolved little pieces of the sewing machine and were trying to make sure that no one else could produce it. And eventually they all got together. They were Everyone was suing everyone. And one of the lawyers um, proposed like the idea of a patent pool, which is still um, an important legal entity uh, kind of uh, principle in the US. I'm not sure about internationally, although I assume there's some ways in which this works in in other countries' legal systems. But the patent pool allows multiple manufacturers to share some intellectual property so that they don't all have to constantly sue each other. So so Singer wasn't a sophisticated legal theorist, but he, he would just threaten to throw you down the stairs if you didn't do what he said. And um, he teamed up with a lawyer who worked with him and, and ultimately the, the combination of their skills helped them to become predominant. But so did the fact that he was one of the first 
people to be he, he, Singer is is arguably one of the first multinational companies. So he he produced in um, in Glasgow and in Germany. Uh, and, and while competitors in the U.S. were wiped out by the Civil War, Singer wasn't because he had sort of diversified early into Europe. One of the shocking things you mentioned in that respect is women who would rather be prostitutes than a sewing machine operator. Yeah. I mean, that's that's why I, I started um, early on in the book with this sort of general um, history of women being ejected from the economy, because it then leads to a situation in the 19th century where there are so few avenues for women to earn cash that they really are um, stuck with these pretty miserable options. And yeah, and the, t- the, the two... <laughs> the two kind of bottom of the barrel options, but really the two main options for women in the 19th century economy were garment work and prostitution. And indeed, um, understandably, um, many women chose prostitution. It's hard to, hard to consider. So from that bleak place, we'll go on to the fascinating world of synthetics. Okay. The bright new world. Yes, I can't. I can't promise it's not also going to get bleak, but it is bright. Dupont invented nylon. Viscose was made. Yeah. So, so that section um, starts with the story actually of rayon, which is sort of the first big synthetic, which is made of um, wood pulp, and um, the story I tell in the section about rayon is pretty much the story of, um, of labor and sort of labor struggles, especially in the U.S. But also, um, you know, it's, it's a scientific story because a lot of workers were becoming very ill from working from a chemical involved on RAND manufacture, and, and scientists were kind of tracking it from early days and then kind of losing the scent so, so the story of Rayon is, is really the story of um, how protections for workers, unfortunately, tend to really lag behind, um, even when the science is there, showing that, that, that the, the, um, the chemical process workers are being asked to, to work with are, are really poisonous. So that's the story of Rayon. And then, yeah, we go into nylon and polyester and and get into the story of the globalization of the garment industry which is really shocking or was really shocking to me when i when i first sort of started researching it it has a lot to do with world war ii and it has a lot to do with the cold war uh, so the u.s was really um trying to get japan re- reindustrialized as fast as possible after you know after the end of World War II, so that it wouldn't quote unquote fall to communism. So they injected a huge amount of money into getting its textiles going, and then this spread to other countries in Asia. So I think in the US, anyways, we have this story of of like American deindustrialization happening kind of randomly. Like all of a sudden there was these Asian competitors. But actually the US State Department had a really large hand in creating those competitors in the post-war era. So and that's part of the story I tell in the section about nylon. And, um, and then, yeah, it, it just becomes a huge, you know, chemically, um, chemi- petro fabrics are really chemically intensive. So the, um, they're really highly 
they're capital intensive rather. Sorry, I'm losing my words, but they, they tend to be really, really big corporations. Like some of the biggest corporations in the world today are companies that make um, synthetic fibers. So it, it, it's a time when fabric production gets even more uh, um, kind of centered in a few very, very large corporations. And it, it also is a story that intersects with kind of like um, youth fashion and sportswear and kind of like a more casual style after World War II and teenagers coming on the scene as big consumers. And then um, when I get to the story at the end of um, of like microfibers and kind of move move into the 80s and 90s, that's when I, I tell the story of Honduras, which is um, a, a country where a lot of um, political um, force has been applied by the U.S. to kind of thwart, um, in you know, local efforts towards a more democratic um, situation there, and and then that kind of poverty that's resulted from those political efforts is capitalized on by by garment manufacturers. So it's a story about export processing zones, which are. Um, kind of these unique little legal entities that exist inside of countries where a lot of garment manufacture happens and how these have proliferated around the world as the site of garment manufacture. So it's a lot, um, it's a lot about labor, that section, but it's, it's also about, you know, science and technology. And the, the fact is that most, I mean, the, the majority of garments now, the most common, common garment, um, textile is, you know, a petroleum based product. So mostly what people, what we're wearing is mostly petroleum and cotton. Those are the two biggies, but, um, but pretty recently petroleum based fabrics kind of surpassed cotton as being the most commonly worn on the planet. It also strikes me that it's a chapter about huge companies allowed to run rampant, uh, flaunting labor laws, environmental laws, uh, basically doing whatever they want in the name of profit. It is. It is that story. And it is also the story of how nations and trade law kind of made that possible. So up until 2005, there was a global system of tariffs called the multi-fiber arrangement that kind of capped the amount of garments that could be imported to countries like the US and Western Europe and Japan. And it was sort of a way to protect the industries of those countries. And when that disappeared, it led to a situation where there was no, um, there was no tariff boundary coming into the US. And, and that's the point at which in the US, the, the industry just completely collapsed. And it was also a moment where the amount of garments coming in just about doubled and the price just about halved. So it was an enormous shock in terms of the amount of clothing being manufactured globally and the price um, becoming, I mean, when I was um, growing up, most of the garments that I was buying were US made. And it wasn't because I was making a particular effort to shop local. It was just because that was what was in stores. And that is far from true today. And that's actually a pretty recent development. It, it really goes back to 2005 and the end of this big global tariff arrangement. I guess today, even if it says made in the US on it, 
it might not even be made in the US, or if it is, it might not be made by an ethical factory or an ethical maker. That's just true. don't know. And you also have to think about where the fabric came from. As if anyone would tell you the truth. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's not a requirement. No one has, you know, it's interesting what's required in different contexts, but that doesn't need to be on the label, right? Like what the, the, the content, fabric content is required, but not the, the, the manufacturing country for the fabric. So yeah, it's a lot of things are left in the mist, as you said. I do often wonder because people will say, well, look at the label, uh, go and check out their website. And mm-hmm. I'm thinking, well, if you're lying about all this other stuff, mm. who's to say you're telling the truth there? Mm-hmm. I tend to think that, I mean, it's certainly not um, foolproof, but I think one of the best ways is to look at the garment itself, to look at, you know, the, 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 the workmanship. Uh, I mean, ideally, like in a dream world, you know, you're buying a garment from the person who made it or somebody who knows the person who made it. But I think for me, a lot of the times, the best information is the the workmanship and the fabric. If the fabric is is uh, a quality fabric, it's it's less likely that the manufacturer was um, was going to spend was looking to spend you know pennies as well on the the, se- the seamstress. So I think there's actually a lot of information there. Not in you know. Not all the information, but I do think it's important to touch and look and feel and, and care about the quality of a garment itself without without reference to any of the language on the tag. Now I'm going to be very, very careful and not make any direct suggestions here, but I would like to say that plastic fabrics do burn. Wool <laughs> fabrics don't really, which sort of brings us nicely around to wool, <laughs> Indeed. which is where your book gets... A bit lighter, at least towards the end. (laughs) It does. I mean, there is so much exciting stuff happening today in the world of, of, of clothing and in, in people making clothing in ways that are more attuned to the earth and to the people and, and to the people making them. So I have, I've seen that a lot of the, um, more exciting things that are happening. Certainly not all, but many are happening in the world of wool. And that's certainly true here in the US. And I found it to be true other places in the world as well. And, um, wool is a place where, yeah, a lot of, a lot of people who have a small flock might be making sweaters or, you know, coats or blankets or hats out of literally the, the product of their own land. Um, but it's also a place where there's a lot of communal making happening. People will meet up to stitch or knit together or to spin. There's, um, festivals. I went to one in Cumbria in England called Wool Fest and spent just so really deeply soothing two days just hanging around learning about rare sheep breeds and watching women spin and chatting with them and um, I do think it's a place that there is a lot of hope to be to be had and also a lot of pleasure and a lot of connection and um, there are so many people uh, interested in kind of finding a new way to tell this story of garments and I think that 
if you look around wherever you are, you'll, you'll, you'll find them. You probably are one if you're listening to this podcast, but it's something that I, I think when I started to look for it, I realized that in just about every town, there's somebody uh, kind of figuring out new ways to, to make, to grow fiber or to, to, to make a, a textile or to make a garment. And yeah, wool is the place that I really get to celebrate those people and some of the things that are happening now. Woolfest did sound entirely wonderful. It was dreamy. It was dreamy. I, if you, uh, there's probably a, 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 a is there a Woolfest in Norway? I don't think there is, but I know that the Fiber Shed Initiative yes. is getting started here, or has gotten started, and there are some serious wool enthusiasts around. I hope to talk to them when I can find them. Awesome. And this is very good because wool has been at a bit of a difficult time. Um, polyester has sort of completely pushed it out of the scene. I know here in Norway, farmers don't find it worth delivering their wool to the place that receives wool because they basically can't cover their fuel to deliver it. So it's just putting a big hole in the ground. Yeah, it's such a sad story that it's been playing out in the U.S. and England, there in Norway, it, that, yeah, that because of the price of wool being so low, farmers literally burn it or bury it or store it. And it's, oh, that, this really breaks my heart. Uh, and, and I think as a real argument for the, the greater resilience of a local system of trade or of making. And um, it's an incredible way to store carbon too. As some of the characters in the book have discovered, uh, sheep is ba basically a carbon sequestration machine. So I, I don't think that's really for me uppermost in my love of wool, but it is also true that, um, it's, it's a, it's an amazing way to help the land to have sheep be on the land. And traditionally, yeah, sheep were, were were farmed for meat and wool and that was really important to the to the sustainability of that industry for the rancher or the farmer or the shepherd and and that's not true anymore with the prices of wool being what they are so some of these fiber fairs are are, are a gesture towards helping that but it is yeah it is still it is still true that where once there was a huge global industry in wool and it fetched a really good price it's no longer the case so everyone needs to become more tolerant of itchiness. A lot of people are like, oh, it's too itchy. But I like a little itchiness sometimes. I have to admit, I'm, I'm one of them. I do like a nice lamb's wool sweater. <laughs> but uh, the typical British knitwear can be pretty hard It work. can be formidable. It can be. That's true. It's interesting, though, how the, the breeding of sheep kind of followed, I think, the meat track and went away from the usable fibers. Yeah, so originally people started to, when, like in early phases of animal domestication, to instead of going out and killing an animal and dragging it home to eat, realized, oh, we can, we can capture it and then breed it and, and keep it and then eat them, you know, when we're ready. And, and then slowly, um, this evolved into something that was also a, a fiber source. So animals were bred more and more for their fiber. So kind of wild sheep were, um, were, were talk about itchy. That was a, 
a coat that was no, sort of nothing like the the modern um, domestic sheep, so more hairy than woolly, and that they were bred to be uh, the sources of a more usable fiber for for humans over time, over thousands of years. We do have a, an ancient breed being bred locally here, mm. and I think they're their fibers are it has two different ones it has a soft inner fiber mm -hmm. and then it has some outer ones and i think the outer ones are like steel wool wow I, i'm not sure what you can use them for but uh, mm. but it's, there's a lively industry in breeding them now um and we do buy oh, one i'm gonna look up some pictures autumn. i bet they're really i bet they're really cute oh they have these curly horns and yes. they're really great Sorry to interrupt, but at this point in the pod, you're probably wondering, where are the ads? I miss the ads. And you're right, there are no ads. I hate ads. If you'd like to buy me a coffee, though, you can go to buymeacoffee.com, enter Gomology, and it's easy. And, uh, yeah, let's continue on. Now, something that not in the book, but last week Patagonia was in the news. Patagonia, maker of a million billion polyester fleeces. Do you think they should be for forgiven for them? For the million billion polyester fleeces? Mm hmm. Which they I... could have made out of wool. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I uh, also try to steer clear of direct. Um, statements about individual companies, but I, I have a hard time celebrating a polyester fleece under any circumstance. Uh, but, but that's, you know, I had bed bugs this winter and that was, um, that was a really interesting, um, and humbling experience because I had to launder every single item of, of clothing that I owned or else kind of like do this other complex process. And I ended up wearing for a week like pretty much only like the synthetic the couple of synthetic things that I have because they're really easy to throw in the dryer so I do understand why people turn to synthetics for for ease of use and I don't want to vilify that and I think especially if you have I don't know little kids and they're constantly getting things dirty and you want them to dry fast I'm not gonna you know condemn <laughs> condemn the, the the use of polyester but I Certainly, I'm not going to celebrate it either. No, that is tricky. I mean, I wouldn't go after the people wearing it. Right. Because they do have limited choices. But I think it's fair to criticise those that make it if they do have choices. I think, that's a, I think that's a really good distinction and a very important point. Because I think too often some of the critique of the, you know, environmental, of environmental crisis being caused by clothing is really aimed at the consumer. And I think that's not really the, the proper site of our critique. I think, as you say, it is, it is the company because they are the people that are making incredible profits, um, by using the labor of people throughout the world to, um, to produce garments that really Really, no matter what other language goes alongside of that project, it, it, it really is about turning money into more money. <laughs> and, um, and so I think that, yeah, the way that they pursue that project is worthy of our critique. Definitely, definitely. Now, the book's been out a year or so, is it? 
Yeah, it came out at the end of January, so about eight eight months, I suppose. What has changed since then? Hmm. You mean in the world or in my life? <laughs> in your world. <laughs> in my world. I have to say that it was very satisfying to finish this book um, because it's the kind of thing that I felt a very deep urge to tell people about, and that was why I wrote this book. And I feel, although I continue to, to talk about these issues, sometimes I feel like I said what I needed to say, and it's been exciting to have the book be in the hands of others who may, might take something from it um, for their own lives or for their own scholarship or their own agricultural products and to let it have a life out there in the world has been really fun to watch and um, very gratifying and 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 yeah just not walking around with this sense like I have this huge thing to say because I, I said it and and I'm 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 glad I did and um, and I'm glad it can now go out and have a life of its own and and meet people and it's also like with you know this conversation we're having now it's drawn me towards and people towards me it's it's connected me with a lot of other people all over the world who have a similar interest in the future of clothing and that's been really incredible to to just get exposed to how many people are invested in this project and are are really doing amazing work all over the world it has also done a fantastic job in connecting a huge amount of dots and documenting it and bringing those connections to more people. Thank you. That was the hope. The world is so complicated now that it is hard to see how everything works together. And I see it with with fast fashion now. People say, oh, stop buying fast fashion. But then you realise that, well, it's not that easy. No. And it was like you were saying with the supply chains, where they could find out how their supply chains work, but they choose not to. It's like one of my previous guests said that, well, I mean, paying garment workers in Bangladesh a fair wage, that's not how business is done. Mm. So they can't do that. And then sort of seeing how this really works, and it's not as simple as we might hope, and the solutions aren't easy either. I, I agree. Do you still get back to the dump teak? I do. Does it still I absolutely exist? do. It does. <laughs> it was closed for a, a couple of years during the pandemic. And last time, my brother lives on Martha's Vineyard still. And last time I was there, I went to the Demtique and it was fabulous. I noticed you made a point of not mentioning the location in the book, which oh, yeah, just makes you can't, it sound. You can't give it away. <laughs> I mean, if, if you find a really great thrift store, don't tell anyone where it is. Unless it's in Budapest. <laughs> 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 yes, please do some thrift shopping in Budapest. You will not be disappointed. Unless, I don't know, maybe maybe in Norway everybody's already got plenty of those sweaters, but I was stunned. Yeah, we're not, we're okay for sweaters. I have actually been <laughs> thrift shopping a bit in Budapest. Um, okay. But I think you need to know where to go, mm. where the, the really good places are. Okay, Sophie, I think we've just about reached the end. Is there anything you'd like to mention in closing? Anything upcoming? Anything fun? Anything you care madly about? 
Oh, wow. Well, I, um, I'm just grateful that you had me on. And uh, I would just like to say that I think amid all this doom and gloom and devastation that clothing can be fun and, and we should try to have some fun with it as we try to do good. I couldn't agree more. And that's kind of my angle on it before I got into all the the conscious environmental non-ethical capitalist yada yada thing which kind of kills the fun yeah, because I it is a wonderful avenue for human expression i agree and i think keeping that 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 alive is really important and energizing for all that other stuff okay sophie thank you for being my guest today thank you for having me on and uh bye-bye for now bye-bye And that's all for this week's episode of Garmology. If you'd like to check out my guest further, there's links in the show notes. There's also links to uh, how you can uh, support the pod by buying me a cup of coffee, which is perfectly optional. I'm just pleased you're listening. If you'd like to get in touch, suggest a guest, just let me know what you think. It's uh, welldressedad at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram as welldressedad. So until next week, bye-bye.